Hi, it's Stephen from I Know That Face here. Before the episode, I just wanted to tell listeners to make sure to stick around after Andrew and I's character actor talk for an interview I conducted with Ono O'Donnell, who attended the Venice Film Festival earlier this month. Enjoy the episode. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are discussing the first lady of the indie cinema, Lily Taylor. Andrew, run down her history. Lily Taylor was born in Illinois in 1967. She was educated at both the theatre school at DePaul University and the Piven Theatre Workshop. In her first screen role, she played a waitress in an episode of the Michael Mann-produced NBC series Crime Story in 1986. Her first film roles were in the 1988 romantic comedies She's Having a Baby and Mystic Pizza. Taylor is known for her distinctive characters such as Grace Stalker in Arizona Dream, Kathleen Conklin in Abel Ferreira's The Addiction, and Valerie Solanas in I Shot Andy Warhol. She's maintained a consistent career in both TV and film from 1986 to the present day and is as capable of leading a film such as The Haunting or Girl's Town as she is supporting in the likes of Pecker or Factotum. Taylor has had a varied career in TV with many guest spots that have garnered her three Emmy nods, as well as a supporting role in Six Feet Under. She has appeared in the fifth season of The X-Files, as well as The Good Wife and Almost Human. As well as her Emmy nominations, she is also the recipient of an Independent Spirit Award for her performance in Household Saints. Her most recent roles include the 2020 films The Evening Hour and Paper Spider, and the 2020 HBO reboot of Perry Mason. Perry Mason, so good. Um, yeah, it was my idea to cover Lily Taylor because um, I think she's sort of the perfect subject for us to cover on the show in that she is a proper character actress. Like, we don't need to qualify anything or defend the choice. You know, she she's made a career out of, as you said, playing these kind of darker, unconventional characters, such as in The Addiction or Aishani Warhol. But as, as well as also kind of, I think, bringing a, a history and a life to characters that might not have it on the page in projects in which she has smaller roles, like in stuff like... Public Enemies or The Conjuring or in uh, Perry Mason where she has a very small role in but leaves a big impression and um, yeah I think very distinct presence on screen striking looking she's like 5 foot 2 like she is small but she's got these kind of sharp cheekbones and big lips and this low raspy voice I, I read online someone described it as whiskey toned which I, I think she can <laughs> use to make her characters feel sometimes a bit extra haunted or intense but also kind of formidable despite her short stature so and you know i think she broke onto the scene as one of the big faces of the so-called kind of golden age of the u.s 90s indie cinema but i I think has continued to find interesting work after that often seeking out good directors or interesting roles in tv but uh i i pitched her do do you have any strong thoughts on taylor before we get into the movies uh well i didn't i didn't to be honest i didn't know who she was um when uh you'd first brought her up um, but this isn't a Christopher, Christopher Abbott situation where I, I discover an actor and end up hating everything that they're in um, no offence Christopher but I, I realised I had seen her in something before which was The Conjuring which I had really enjoyed as like this kind of fun house um, fairground ride type ghost story movie um, and yeah but the movies I watched her in it was mostly supporting roles other than like The Addiction and The Haunting yeah no she leaves an impression uh, I think I need to, you know, dive a bit more into her, maybe some of her uh, more meatier work, like I shot Andy Warhol or um, Arizona Dream or something like that, to really get a, a full handle on um, uh, her career as an actor. 
Arizona Dream, you you can't get a full handle on that movie. That movie's wild. <laughs> I tried. Um, but do you want to start off on... Um, you watched one of our earlier roles, Mystic Pizza. Yeah, sure. Lily Taylor plays Jojo, a waitress at the pizza parlor Mystic Pizza, where she works with her two best friends, Cass, who's played by Annabeth Gish, and Daisy, who's played by Julia Roberts. Uh, Jojo is so nervous about marriage and commitment to Fisherman Bill, who's played by a USDA certified Hunkaline... Vincent D'Onofrio, um, that she faints at her wedding, leaving her and Bill on uncertain terms. Something's going on. It's just... It's just that I broke up with Bill this morning. Oh, shit. No, it's no big deal, really. I mean, Bill and I haven't been getting along at all, and I just couldn't do it anymore, so I told him, and... You know, he got real upset and started to cry. But I had to do it, you know? Hey, it's okay. I mean, it had to happen. I'm fine. In fact, I don't know. I feel kind of good. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, Bill and I are so different. Everything he wants, I don't. The marriage, the kids, all that stuff. I mean, I really want that stuff. Real bad. I, I just don't want it now. He doesn't understand. If he really loved me, he'd wait. But I guess if I really loved him, I'd marry him. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Mystic Pizza is like this kind of romantic comedy, kind of coming of age um, movie that has three central romance plots. So it's it basically it's a film that tries to take on too much and uh, kind of you can all, you can a lot of the time it's you can see that it's like buckling under the weight of all this. But I think it's it's an odd film. It's like um, my big fat Greek wedding or something. Only you know a bit less successful because this is about like Portuguese American culture um, in the town of Mystic, Connecticut. But it's never really clear how that culture is different from Italian American culture because they're all they all speak with like a similar accent to an Italian American. The movie is about a pizza parlor, and it's strange that they that they were like, oh, we're gonna make it this specific culture. But change nothing so that no one, no one would really know. You know, yeah. the only difference is the second name of uh, I think it's Arujo. Um, uh, yeah, who knew Mystic Connecticut was such a bastion for Portuguese American culture? Um, and the movie is mostly just a group of good-looking people in soft lighting looking at each other, which unfortunately does not actually make a romantic comedy. Uh, which is hard to believe. It's about sixty percent of um, what you need, but you also need you know character depth and uh, you know something other than you know, weird relationships, um, which this movie has in spades. And the more of them I watch, the more I'm convinced how few, like, actually great American 80s coming-of-age movies there are. Like, I think The Breakfast Club. And who knows after that, because all the other ones I've watched have been like, oof, not that great. Maybe they should cut. They should have cut the rape subplot or the underage sex subplot, you know. Anyway, and I think just in terms of Lily Taylor... She mostly flips between basically four four kind of actions, um, which is fear and commitment, supporting her two best friends, having sex with Bill, and then talking about having sex with Bill. And like the role of Jojo is it's not what you'd call a juicy role, but it is one of the many ways the film looks at how like um women are treated based on both their gender and their social standing. So um Cass, who's played by Annabeth Gish, would be a bit, you know, a bit more, um, let's say, intelligent and uh, nerdy than um, her sister Daisy, who's played by Julia Roberts, who's uh, a real fun-loving girl. You know, she spends her weekends at the Peg Leg Pub 
and uh, just works so she can afford to go out at night and uh, go on dates and stuff like that. So Cat falls for a Yale graduate and architect uh, who she's babysitting for. Um, Daisy um, is being used by this black sheep of this old money family, uh, a guy called Charles Gordon Windsor Jr., who's played by Adam Stork, to like rebel against his family. And um, I think JoJo's one is probably the more interesting one because the other two are just very rote kind of um, 80s um, coming-of-age movie plots, I think. Oh, she's having sex with the teacher. Oh, no. That kind of stuff. Whereas um, JoJo's conflict is one between is one of like tradition and modernity where her parents and everyone else is pressuring her to get married because she's, uh, she's very much in love with Bill. She's just afraid of commitment. And it's one of these movies that like... like um, my Big Fat Greek Wedding, or something even more modern, like uh, that weird movie, that Little Italy, that had uh, Hayden Christensen and Emma Roberts in it a couple of years ago. Um, it does eventually like capitulate to you know tradition. It's like, oh, you should get married, you should have three kids, and you should um, pick the fish scales out of your fisherman husband's boots when he comes home, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's just similar to the likes of My Big Fat Greek Wedding and the first half of The Deer Hunter. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if I'd recommend it. Like, if it's it's very it's, it's very watchable for a romantic comedy, and because it's the eighties, it's uh, it feels very um, you know, different from a lot of the stuff that would get produced today. Mm, yeah. So if you're going for the Lily Taylor kind of coming of age movie, maybe say anything would be the. She has a very small role in that, but. Okay. Well, the role is pretty small in this too. So yeah, either or really. Yeah, um, I always just sneaks up on me how much romantic comedies you watch for because you are usually the first person to tell me about some fucked up asian action movie or some horror movie or like you're a real genre head and then you're like yeah i'm doing a nicholas sparks binge and i'm loving it <laughs> <laughs> like what uh it's great keeps it's it not fresh. just me that did the nicholas sparks binge it was me and my housemates we all agreed on it together this was a well, actually, two of us, me and the woman, the woman I live with, agreed on it, and we roped the other two into it. So. <laughs> it was um, a fun 11 weeks, though. <laughs> 11, Jesus. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm going to talk about Dogfight, which, um, right off the bat, I should mention, is one of the few movies uh, River Phoenix, uh, who was Joaquin Phoenix's brother and a big star in his own right, was in uh, before he tragically died at the age of 23. and. That happened in 1993, and I wasn't even born yet, but it, it, it still feels like a tragedy because he's so mm. good and likable in Dogfight, which is a real testament to him as the plot hinges on him doing something pretty awful. So it's a, it's sad we were robbed of a full career of work from the actor, but like it, this movie's a real showcase for him and Taylor as their performances and chemistry with each other. Each you know, They carry the film, and uh, aside from a brief prologue and epilogue, Dogfight takes place entirely on the day before uh, President John Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, and Phoenix's character Eddie Birdlace and three of his Marine buddies have arrived in San Francisco for 24 hours before shipping off to Vietnam and are going to attend a dogfight. And this is a party where Marines all pay $50 and then compete to bring the ugliest date, unbeknownst to the girls they bring. Then, whoever's oh, deemed, God. then whoever is deemed to have brought the ugliest date wins a certain amount of money. And uh, on top of being very cruel, Charlene, uh, my girlfriend who watched this, uh, pointed out that it's also kind of the plot for the Paul Rudd, Steve Carell comedy Dinner for Schmucks. Oh, okay. <laughs> but... Um, you know, Eddie wants to win the money and fit in with the Marines. He's this kind of young, 18-year-old, immature, kind of dumb guy. So he tries to find a woman to bring to the dogfight. And after 
A few women reject his advances. He goes into a coffee shop and meets Rose Fenny, played by Lily Taylor, who is this waitress who works in her mother's establishment. And even though she's not unattractive by any means, like she's coming to the end of a long shift and her hair is a bit messy. She's wearing this kind of unflattering uniform and she seems a little shy and awkward with Eddie. And because he's stuck for a date, he invites her to the dogfight. And almost immediately he regrets it because she goes upstairs and gets stalled up for the party and comes back down. And she looks so glamorous. But <laughs> she also seems like really cool as a person. And right away, Eddie is like, we don't have to go to the party. It's probably going to be boring and she's like no no i want to and as expected you know she finds out about the ruse and gets her her heart broken but um after he apologizes sincerely and shows up at her house and offers to show her good night um she ends up going with him and the rest of it is this sort of before sunrise-esque kind of walking and talking romance but it with the whole thing sort of tinging this darkness and melancholy because we know what's about to happen to eddie and his friends in vietnam and about what's going to happen to america People are such goddamn idiots. I know they are. But what what is the point of spending all your time and energy trying to get even with everybody that makes you angry? Because it feels great, that's why it feels fucking great, especially when there's an asshole. And what is the point of every word that comes out of your mouth be a curse word? Mm. Well, are you ready to order now or no? Yes, goddammit. I'm going to have the 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 fucking poached salmon with the son of a bitching rice and uh and a, and a dirty bastard salad with a, with a shitload of Roquefort dressing. Thank you. And uh, who knows what this asshole wants. Yeah, this is, I feel like this is the type of story that could rub certain viewers up the wrong way in that, like, it doesn't sound very feminist, and both in terms of the dogfight competition, but also the fact that Rose forgives Eddie and spends the night with him. But I think to its credit, the movie, uh, which is directed by a female um, director, Nancy Savoka, um, never really minds much comedy or enjoys the dogfight. You know, like the first 30 minutes of the movie are actually quite tense because Rose is enjoying the party, but we know like there's going to be the revelation that, you know, of the truth and she's going to be hurt. And um, like the movie is set in 1963, right? As this kind of second wave feminist movement is starting uh, at a time where that kind of like boys will be boys attitude and kind of casual misogyny was a lot more, you know, commonly accepted, which I think the movie is serving as a critique of that. And like Eddie is shown as being someone who blindly follows the pack and it's only through meeting Rose that he gains a bit of maturity and learns to think for himself. And I, I, plus when Rose finds out about the dogfight and confronts Eddie about it, like she hits him in the face like twice and like really <laughs> punches him and like, and she spits at him like, you cruel, heartless, ignorant creep. And like, you're meant to be on her side. Like it's the Marines who are the idiots, you know? Like it's very well-intentioned, I think. And adding to that and also making it a bit of a pleasure to watch is Lily Taylor's performance, who despite appearing at first as being a bit introverted and withdrawn, you know, she never makes her character feel like the butt of the joke because, like, for the moment you meet Rose, like, she's, like, strumming away on a guitar in the back of the cafe her mom owns. And you understand that, well, this dumb jarhead, you know, may at first think that she's a loser because she might not look like the women he sees in the, and I'm going to use air quotes, skin flicks, which him and his uh, friends watch in the Marines and their downtime. Like, she's a really interesting person with her own sort of unique style. And, like, she's obsessed with the folk music of the era and wants to be a singer. And anytime she talks about that, like, Taylor plays her as being this really kind of perked up and animated and wide-eyed. And at the same time, she she talks about, you know, her dreams of traveling the world and becoming an activist. And, you know, if she is shy or awkward or a bit of a wallflower at first, it's only because she has this slightly overbearing mother who would suggest it makes her work in the cafe and prevents her from usually going to parties, which I think is why she jumps at the opportunity to go out with Eddie and gives him a second chance when he probably doesn't deserve it. And like Taylor conveys all that in her performance because 
in her opening scene, like she's very timid. She she never holds contact with Phoenix, eye contact with Phoenix for too long. You can tell she's very careful in the words she uses. You can feel they're kind of withholding because Rose is trying not to do anything that could upset Eddie or her mother, who's just close by and and like Eddie bullshits at first about knowing stuff about folk music and Rose catches on to it but doesn't call him out on it because she, she just kind of plays along because you get a sense that you know she just likes that he's talking to her like this isn't a thing that happens to her all the time and from there you watch her sort of open up throughout the movie going from being guarded in that first scene to being kind of giddy and excitable on the way to the party to being just like so furious and heartbroken at the betrayal to being this more truthful version of herself kind of encompassing all those different parts of her and uh on top of that there's just like great scenes in which phoenix is and Taylor's characters fight and they feel really dramatic. Like there's this great bit where Eddie has a chip on his shoulder about um, not being allowed into a restaurant because of his attire, or almost not being that eventually gets in. And he says like, "I'm gonna ruin that waiter's night." And she's like, "Why?" And he's like, "He disrespected me." And she's like, "You think this will make him respect you?" That and she says like, "What's the point of spending your life trying to get even with everyone who makes you angry?" And she's just like constantly dropping these like pearls of wisdom and teaching Eddie how to be better. And there's also some humor because like Eddie swears a lot too, like every second word because all the other Marines do in that sort of, like, Arlie Ermy kind of way. And she doesn't like it. And to show him how, like, dumb he sounds when she orders in the restaurant, she's like, I'll have the poached fucking salmon and the son-of-a-bitch rice on the side. And the delivery is so perfect because, like, she speaks such a gentle, like, manner throughout the movie. <laughs> and so that when you hear the curse words coming out of her mouth, it's really shocking. And, um, yeah, and they just have this sort of natural romantic chemistry that also helps you kind of overcome any problem you might have with the premise because it's it's that movie magic thing where you just believe in their connection. Like, there's a scene where Eddie comes out of the bathroom and realizes his fly is down and he's like, whoa! And Taylor giggles and, like, puts her hand over her face to try and, like, stop herself from laughing. And it doesn't seem like a, a scripted moment. Like, it seems like just something that would actually happen. And um, it's very natural. And then he's like, I should probably take you home. And she just goes, I don't know. <laughs> and immediately you're like they're not going home you know mm. and uh just a, like as a last point like while a lot of the movie is walking and talking and arguing you know some of the most impactful scenes are just taylor silent with the camera holding on her for a minute and after rose finds out about the dog fight you see her in her bedroom just on the edge of tears listening to john baez's uh, silver dagger on vinyl and your heart just goes out to her because she looks so devastated and it's that thing where it's like good actors don't cry you know they yeah you feel like they're going to but they don't you know yeah. And then also the like final scene of the movie is nearly totally silent and like it's this is a spoiler but it, it's it's a more world weary Eddie meeting Rose a couple of years later in the cafe in which they first met which she now runs and instead of the sort of dowdy uniform her mother made her wear she now has this kind of more modern vibrant kind of hippie dress and she seems a bit more confident and she's running the cafe and they both seem more, more mature but also haunted because all Eddie's marine friends were killed in the war and he was injured and he's limping and rose to talk about wanting to have a life outside of the cafe and not following in her mom's footsteps but so it seems like that didn't happen and instead of saying anything the pair just embrace in this long hug they don't say anything and um it's just incredibly emotional and it feels sort of triumphant but also melancholic and if you haven't seen dogfight yeah it's a, it's a very beautiful movie and a, it was a great date movie too oh yeah. finally <laughs> i know after forcing my girlfriend to watch it was a dune and uh Valhalla rising you know i think i made it up through a yeah yeah um will we talk about the addiction which is the only movie both of us watched for this yeah sure do you want me to run down the plot if you could yeah so lily taylor plays kathleen conklin a graduate student of philosophy in new york who is bitten by casanova uh, a vampire played by annabella sciora or sciora uh, Kathleen soon begins to crave human blood, leading her to attack and drink from her friends, fellow students, and professors. Jesus. 
I'm rotting inside. But I'm not dying. I could go on like this forever. Cassie. No, come on. We're all called in for the debt. Most of us go for plastic surgery to hide the blemishes. But you can't cut where the disease originates. I don't even know who I'm talking to. <laughs> Kathy, you gotta get some help. You know, it's obtuseness. It's disheartening, especially in a doctoral candidate. You ought to know better. I, I ought to know what better? You're acting like a lunatic. Sure. It's easy to spot in people like me. The cancer's grown obvious. But you're as terminal as I am. You know that? You're as addicted as I am. It's the nature of the organism. Is that what this is about? Yep. That's it. Now look me in the face. Tell me to go. Look sin in the face. You tell it to go. Kathy. Please. That's what it does to you. Oh. I you look me in the face and you tell me to go. You're hurting me. Are you kidding me? I'll crush you like cardboard. Kathy, what do you want from me? Uh, you're the Abel Ferreira stand here, Stephen. You can take take it take the lead on this one. Yeah, um, I have a huge amount of respect for this movie in that it's a truly cerebral existential horror movie, which I think on the surface is making this sort of allegory between vampirism, you know, addiction to blood, with heroin addiction, and I think oftentimes in the movie, you know, in its most overt metaphor to that, like Taylor's character Kathleen, instead of sucking the blood out of her victim's neck, as typical in vampire movies, uh, will drain it via syringe and inject herself with it and sort of like flake out in like a bathtub, and... You know, then Christopher Walken shows up for a couple of great scenes. Late in the movie is this older, more experienced vampire who claims to have trained himself to no longer crave blood and argues that vampirism is less of a physical urge than a, than a psychological one. But I also think the movie isn't just exploring drug addiction, but also kind of like mankind's propensity and addiction to sin and self-destruction. Because like Libby Taylor is this philosophy student who's studying all these terrible historical genocides and there's narration from her where she's talking about why these things keep happening and why people don't learn from their mistakes and she says and I think I'm paraphrasing but maybe it's not that we don't learn from history maybe everything we do is eternally with us and that this destructive nature is part of humans which is the, the idea of original sin and and but what's very interesting to me in the movie is that idea that when Annabella Scura attacks Lily Taylor at first she's like tell me to stop and go away and Taylor can't do it for some reason. And it's similar when Taylor um, becomes the the attacker and uh, she says the same thing Skewer said to her. And I think the movie's trying to make a point about humans playing a role in their own destruction and more moral decline. And the movie quotes Nietzsche a lot. And it, it kind of reminds me of that thing in our favorite movie, The Empty Man, where um, Stephen Root says Nietzsche's famous quote, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back into you. But he, he adds like, what does that say about humans that we are always looking for an abyss to stare into like what what about an abyss calls us and uh i'm just such a kind of a sucker or a blood sucker um for that <laughs> thing that happens when you you think there's no more you could do with a certain subgenre and then something comes out like the addiction and you realize oh there's so much kind of fertile uncharted territory to explore and i, I find this movie very intellectually stimulating but uh i will say i kind of prefer for our working with a more kind of pulpy genre framework like king of new york or funeral because it makes the his grin existentialism a little bit go down a little smoother and I, yeah. I i do think this movie often lays on the philosophy a bit thick while at the same time being a bit too vague or unclear about some of its plot details like i've seen this movie three times now i i, I never quite get the ending 
I'm not sure either. I think it's something to do with rebirth. I know that much. Yeah. And it's hard to tell if, like, has she, like, been cured of her addiction somehow or learned to live with it? Or is she, like, oh, just a ghost? I always thought it was that she tried to die and couldn't the first couple of times I watched it. But this time I was like, oh, it does feel a bit more uplifting. I don't know. I, I never quite get it. Yeah. But um, I think that kind of murkiness about the genre stuff and the sort of just heaviness of the philosophy makes this... Less entertaining, but more interesting than other vampire movies or other Ferrer movies. And um, I think Taylor's performance suffers a bit from having to deliver just reams and reams of dense philosophical theory and be a mouthpiece for the themes of the movie. But, but I do think it's a good performance. But what, what, what do you think about it, the movie? Um, I can't say I enjoyed it. Yeah. I can't say I liked it. Um, I admire it for articulating the hell of what it's like to talk to a philosophy <laughs> student. Um, and I think it is, it's, a, it's like a strange but kind of appropriate meeting point for like the themes of addiction and redemption and like the AIDS crisis. And I think with those dark wraparound sunglasses Taylor always wears because she's sensitive to sunlight, she does bear like, and this is not an insult, she does bear a striking similarity to Abel Ferreira. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. And also Tommy Wiseau. That is an insult. You can cut that if you like. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. But yeah, I think... Um, <laughs> And so it's you get the kind of if you know what Abel Ferreira looks like or looked like back in 1995, then you know then you know it's like a far more autobiographical movie than if you went in blind to it, say. And um, Taylor's face is just it's one of the most I've said this said, said this a lot about uh, a lot the people we cover, but I think she has one of the most expressive faces I've ever seen. It has like this weird sort of timelessness to it that makes her appear kind of like both youthful and like there's a history there as well it's hard to it's i can't explain it any better than that but like it's a face for a movie that opens with footage of the my line of the me line massacre so you know that it's not here to fuck around like it's an 82 minutes of just philosophical dialogue and then it ends the penultimate scene is just this fucking orgy of people just biting each other on the neck so it, that scene does a lot with very little, and it also helps that like half the cast of The Sopranos are in it before The Sopranos was even a thing. That's true, <laughs> and I I do think she it's she's very powerful and like committed in the movie because like her character goes on a real journey for like mm. was it seventy eight minutes moving like eighty two minutes yeah I think yeah moving because like on one level it's a journey from sort of prey to predator to then kind of feeling like a tremendous guilt for uh, what she's done. But then also, like, she goes from being this sort of impassioned philosophy student who can't understand why people commit the atrocities that she's doing research on to being driven to commit her own atrocities on her fellow man due to this intense addiction and having to reckon with that. And I, I think she sells those transitions even in just, like, little details, like how clearly uncomfortable she is before she gets turned into a vampire when she, she's catcalled on the street by a young man and she doesn't even look at him. Like, she just keeps her head down and walks on. But then when it happens later, after she becomes a vampire and he does it again, like, she gets right in his face and very calmly is like, I'll be seeing you. <laughs> and uh, later attacks him. And she's also very, like, frightened and, again, timid in the scene where, you know, Shkiora turns her into a vampire. And, like, uh, Shkiora feels so dominant and strangely alluring and still and quiet in that moment. And I think Taylor replicates those traits to a T when later she is the one in the position of power and she turns a, another young college student into a vampire. And, yeah, and there's just something about, like, on a more, like, emotional level, just how deadened and drained Taylor makes her character Kathleen look in hospital after the movie's big blood bacchanal scene. And you can just tell how much the character is suffering and you, you want to just crawl into the screen and, like, comfort her. Yeah. And her face is perfect for a vampire movie because of that, those sharp cheekbones in that beautiful monochrome black-and-white photography make her sort of look gaunt and haunted and um, 
yeah, just the fact that she kind of she is both threatening but also vulnerable at the same time. Like like that she can be so sort of scary, but then also be kind of writhing around in pain or you know desperate for a fix. It's it's a it's a real cocktail. And I should say like. I just find Abel Ferrer is such an interesting person and in that, like, when I spoke to him, it was, it was, he, he's not the most loquacious person, but I feel like he says a lot about himself in his movies. And I think that he's one of these people where, like, if you want to learn about Abel Ferrer, it's better to just watch the films. Yeah, I agree. Anyone that wants to see... Um, obviously, I think that interview is really good um, that you did with him. But anyone that wants to see Abel Ferrer in his... Um, prime so to speak should uh, look up his interview that conan o'brien did with him because the man is like he's basically lying in an armchair with his hand basically covering his face for most of the interview uh, and speaking in an almost whisper and apparently like before the show uh, the, he, he was due to be interviewed he like ran away and some production assistant had to like find him and drag him back um but that's that's kind of what Abel Ferrer was like back in back in the back in the day, you know. Yeah, and he and he's spoken about it and, and has made movies about it, but he mm. was a, a drug addict for many many years, yeah. and um, his name kicked it apparently. But um, I feel like the addiction is, is maybe sort of his depiction of how that felt. Yeah, you yeah. know. Can I talk about Arizona Dream? Go for it. Yeah, so the, this is a uh, 1993 surrealist indie comedy drama film from a acclaimed Serbian filmmaker, Emir Costa Rica. It's his only US film to date, I believe, and it is uh, quite out there. But to sum up the plot, Johnny Depp plays this homeless man with a job tending to fish in New York who is obsessed with this recurring dream he has of an Inuit hunter in Alaska. And uh, basically his cousin shows up, who's this aspiring actor played by Vincent Gallo, and says that their uncle, played by Jerry Lewis, wants Depp's character to leave New York and come to work with him in his car dealership in Arizona. Depp refuses, but Gallo gets him drunk and essentially kidnaps him. And uh, upon arriving in Arizona, Depp agrees to spend a week working with the uncle to see if the career is for him. And that all really... you think that that would be enough for kind of a plot of a movie, but that all kind of ends up taking a backseat because while working at the dealership, Depp falls for a glamorous Pukuki older woman played by Faye Dunaway, who is the widow of a rich miner, and she has dreams of building her own flying machine and is always messing with these kind of rinky-dink contraptions and... She has a gloomy stepdaughter, played by Lily Taylor, who has a crush on Depp and is jealous of her stepmother and whose only real joy seemingly comes from her pet turtles on playing the accordion and, you know, wacky antics and on top of tragedy ensues. You're not the first. Did you know that? Could I have some milk? like yourself she eats you up like chocolates a spoon could i have a spoon do you know what she does when she's done eating a whole box of chocolates she sticks her finger down her throat and it all comes back up you must have done really well in school mm-hmm. a lot of these movies are very um hard to sum up in kind of one sentence or a log line like I shot Andy yeah, Warhol, agree. The yeah. Addiction, Arizona Dream, and um, well, I shot Andy Warhol is pretty easy. She shoots Andy Warhol. That's true. That's a good point. But um, I, like this movie is like it, the plot and characters don't make linear sense. And I, I spent a good three hours trying to describe my thoughts on this movie and Lily Taylor's part in it on paper, and I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel or more how to express how I feel. Because on the positive side, I always think that when acclaimed non-American filmmakers 
make movies set in America, whether the films are good or bad, they're usually quite interesting because the directors are bringing an outsider perspective. Not only do they tend to set their films in parts of America that might not often be seen on screen, but they, I think they explore in greater depth or even like criticize American ideals and notions that native filmmakers might just take for granted. And I think that's the case with Arizona Dream, which I think is proven the notion of the American dream and how difficult it is to achieve and whether it's even real or not. Because in its first two thirds, the movie has this kind of madcap playful energy in which it finds great humors out of its characters and their yearning. So Vincent Gallo, who's sort of the standard of this movie, um, character speaks in this affected New York accent because he says, all oh, the great actors do, Pacino, De Niro. And he enters a talent competition to show off his acting, but he chooses to perform the scene from uh, North by Northwest where Jimmy Stewart is chased by a crop dusting plane. Uh, a, a, a notoriously silent scene. <laughs> and the performance is just him playing like audio of a plane mm. and him just diving to the ground over and over again. And it's hysterically funny to watch as a viewer at home, but like the judges score of like one out of ten and they hate it and he's so annoyed. But then later, Faye Dunaway's character is gifted a crop dusting plane from her daughter because it's her dream to fly. And she chases Gallo around on her farm, recreating the scene from North by Northwest. And Gallo's like, oh, I fucking hate that movie now. Like, so there's a lot of, like, <laughs> scenes like that that would stick in my head forever in Arizona Dream and, like, this wacky comedy and meta-references and a lot of, like, lovely fantasy sequences where ambulances drive to the moon and people float and characters are stalked by floating fish and a dog saves a man from dying on the snow. Um, scenes all loosely connected by this sort of idea of dreams. But as the movie goes on, and, this like, this movie's over 140 minutes and you feel it... Um, proceedings take a, a darker turn and you begin to realize like no one is really going to get the dream that they want and the, the sort of joyous air of the movie gets deflated and I think that's mostly to do with Taylor's character Grace and like she's excellent in this movie and in that like she understood the assignment but I suppose I just think the way the character is handled and the impact she has on the movie left a bad taste in my mouth because she's introduced as being like comedically intense describing how she wants to die and then be reincarnated as a turtle. She has this really hostile relationship with her stepmother who she blames for her father's death and they're always at each other's throats. And one argument ends with Taylor's character trying to do something shocking with a pair of pantyhose, which I won't spoil, but what follows is either very funny or in terrible taste. I'm still wrestling with it. But essentially, Grace begins the movie feeling like kind of a parody of like an angry, intense, gloomy character. And Taylor's very funny playing that with her character kind of gleefully smashing up her mother's flying machines with a sledgehammer or playing this joyous accordion music with this expressionless kind of ominous look on her face with a cigarette hanging out on her mouth while nearby Johnny Depp pretends to be a chicken. And um, there's also a scene where she kicks Johnny Depp in the balls and another where she throws milk right in his face, which I, I really enjoyed. But I really liked all that Madcap stuff with these kind of offbeat strange characters trying to coexist. But it like felt anarchic and fun. But the movie becomes more serious. Like, and I ask you to begin to take Taylor's character's mental state suddenly very seriously. And, like, spoiler alert, but she, she takes her life at the end of the movie, and it, it's just... I think Taylor brings it, and it's, like, emotionally affecting, and the way it's shot feels very operatic and tragic, but the tonal, lash, or tonal whiplash left me feeling kind of uncomfortable. And I, I, I think my issue with the movie is that while Taylor is great at the comedic scenes as well as, like, the deathly serious scenes, the two sides don't gel at all and play very awkwardly with each other, and I, I think the movie's trying to make this point that dreams often don't come true, and the one thing that people can guarantee will happen is death. But I think there's a way you could capture that sense of melancholy without the abrupt tonal shift because, I don't know, the manner of her death makes the comedy seem less funny and the comedy makes her death feel kind of glib. And I was trying to see if any other person agreed with this and um, I, I tried looking up to see online, like, if anyone... Because this movie is a bit, has been is sort of underseen. So I typed in, like, Arizona dream ending into Google to see if anyone agreed. But all I got back was the dream ending of raising Arizona, 
you know, the S the SEO was all messed up. Um, but Arizona Dream, not as good as Raising Arizona. It, it's kind of a real hot mess with like these like great highs with uh, weird lows. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Do you want to talk about the haunting? Sure. So Lily Taylor plays Nell Vance, a young woman who suffers from insomnia and is left in an anxious state by it after having had to care for her ailing mother for 11 years. Accepting an offer from Dr. David Marrow, played by Liam Neeson, Nell travels to Hill House to participate in what she believes is a sleep study, but is actually a fear study. As ghostly happenings occur, Nell may be the only one capable of saving her companions. So, the book, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, is this brilliantly ambiguous novel that's either a great ghost story or a desperately tragic allegory for mental illness, or both. And it opens with uh, like maybe the best intro of any... Uh, novel out there it's like no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream hill house not sane stood by itself against its hills holding darkness within it had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more within walls continued upright bricks met neatly floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut silence lay steadily against the wooden stone of hill house and whatever walked there walked alone that's really good that's insane that's great unreal and that's like any any movie that has that in it that's adapting hill house they're off to a good start most of them don't succeed um so there was the 1963 movie the haunting uh which had i think it was directed by robert wise and had vincent price in it and then they made the haunting in 1989 which is a remake of that film Stephen King was supposed to write the screenplay. Steven Spielberg was uh, produced it under DreamWorks, uh, but creative differences, they fell out. Someone else wrote the screenplay. Maybe that's why it's shit. Um, and then Mike Flanagan adapted The Haunting of Hill House for Netflix, which uh, a lot of people love and a lot of people hate. Um, so the, the Haunting is a film that was nominated for 11 awards, five at the Golden Raspberries, and six at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Yeah. <laughs> If anyone thought the idea of the Razzies was immature, so it's I think it's it's this it's very heavy on CGI towards the end that looks quite dated now. Even at the time, it might have been uh, pretty good, and a lot, I think a lot of the performances are quite like uncertain. Like Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta Jones, and Owen Wilson are all are play like um, Lily Taylor's characters' uh, companions in the in the study, and um, you watch it and you're like, this is instantly taking me out of the movie. I don't. I don't believe that Liam Neeson or Catherine Zeta-Jones or Owen Wilson would like set foot in a haunted house. Like no, no character. Like they're too famous. You know what I mean? Owen Wilson particularly is, is so not gothic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Owen Wilson especially not gothic. Like oh, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah, she was in um, Side Effects, uh, the Steven Soderbergh movie. So I kind of, I guess it's uh, a bit more you know gothic. Yeah. But side effects is a way sexier movie, so we'll uh, we'll leave that where it lies. Um, so yeah, a horror film with people like Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Owen Wilson shouldn't work, and it doesn't. And so if it weren't for Taylor's performance as Nell, who's a, a woman, who's like this woman who's um, been so locked out of you know her own life for so long, she's and when she gets to her, she finally finds a purpose in that life. Plus the many spooky occurrences at the start of the film, I think this would be this movie would be irredeemable, but. I mean, it's still barely redeemable, but Taylor's like certainty in her role uh, would have helped guide this ship to shore had it not already been sinking uh, from like the halfway point in the movie. What a shame! Who directed it? Jan de Bont, the speed guy. Jan de Bont, yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. Weird. Mm, odd. 
Very strange. Have you watched The Haunting of Hill House, the Mike Flanagan show? I've seen the first episode, um, and I guess I just wasn't impressed. It didn't hook me enough to get me to watch the rest of it. Um, but it seemed, like, you know, I, from what people were saying about it on online and stuff, it seemed uh, pretty spooky and compelling. I mean, it also seemed like uh, people absolutely hated it because it's, it's just not... It's just not really an adaptation. Like Hill House is in there, but you know, there's no one. Um, there's no one from the really from the book in in the series. Right. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Come on, sissy, that pod. Let's get thickening. Are you a fan of the Emmy award-winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, sissy, that pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right. Whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All Stars. Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now, let the music play. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. I might move on to Aisha Andy Warhol, if that's okay. Um, so Aisha Andy Warhol is probably my favourite tale performance. So, um, she plays radical feminist and author Valerie Solanus, who wrote The Scum, or Society for Cutting Up Men Manifesto. Um, in it, she urged women to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete auto- automation, and eliminate the male sex. Um, and she did that before later gaining infamy for attempting to kill influential pop art icon Andy Warhol, played here by an incredible Jared Harris. Did you know that males are biologically inferior females? Hmm? Maybe I ought to read this. I don't want your tacky writing, dear. What makes you think Andy wants to publish you? What makes you think Andy Warhol, the greatest living artist of our time, wants to publish the ravings of a lunatic? I'm just curious. Look at here, you little fuck. I'm not a lunatic. I'm a revolutionary, all right? And I have a whole lot of women behind me. I mean, I got like a whole lot of followers, right? And we've seen the future. And we will inherit the fucking earth. Not you, big boy. So fuck off. Where the fuck did Andy go, huh? Where the... Andy? Yeah, Solas is a big character to embody because she's a very notorious figure because she did this terrible, unforgivable thing trying to murder someone. (laughs) And a person much loved by artistic people, artistic community. 
And um, reading about her, you could interpret her actions as her kind of practicing what she preached in her famous manifesto. But I think more likely the cause is the fact that, you know, she was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And also what she did feels to me like the result of a tough life and that like she claimed she was sexually abused by her father and despite being bright and earning a degree in psychology she became homeless in uh, and turned to prostitution while living in new york uh she was also an out lesbian in the 50s and 60s during a very conservative time in america and I imagine suffered for that and i think reading that or seeing her story depicted in i shot Andy warhol it isn't a major leap to see how someone who, who faced that could turn against the male sex as well as become detached from reality and what I think co-writer and director Mary Harron, uh, this is her debut, she would later go on to make American Psycho, which similarly blends kind of extreme darkness with comedy. Um, what she does here so well is not really shy away from the unpleasantness of Sianus, but at the same time, she provides context for her actions and shows how a society creates a Valerie Sianus and tries to find the human underneath the tabloid father she became. And she's aided not just by this full-blooded firecracker of her performance by Taylor as Solanus, who rather than plays the character, I feel like sort of just becomes her. Because when I started doing research on the real life person after, I was reading all about her and I just couldn't stop thinking about Taylor because she perfectly embodied the way people describe Solanus in her performance. Because she makes her like this compelling and riotous and at first kind of righteously angry character that's just full of life but good and bad and she has this like thick new jersey accent and dresses like a street urchin and is like always on the hustle like ah come on give me a dime come on (laughs) and you know trying to survive and i think through that makes her sort of surprisingly easy to relate to and uh, she just has a lot of kind of energy and vitality and which she brings just through her kind of like body language and speech patterns and they kind of help you understand that how even if what Salanus was preaching was provocative and a bit crass, like you could tell why people would find her and it compelling and raw and heightened in a sort of satirical way. Because we do, watching at first, and it's um, it's kind of fun and interesting to see and hear Salanus's kind of unique perspective on the world at first, which we get through Taylor's narration and these moments where she reads directly to camera from the Skull Manifesto. And um, yeah, just by her charisma alone, you not only see how she would attract the yeah. attention of both Warhol as well as a publisher, but that if she was born in a different, more maybe accepting era, she might have become an important feminist figure without the attempted murder. And um, while Warhol is interested in Solanus and Castor in some of his movies and says he'll read her work because yeah. they're both sort of provocateurs, because he's a gay man, I don't think he's very interested in producing something about the liberation of women. It's just not an interest to him. Plus, that's why it's depicted in the movie. Plus, while he was a visionary, he was very elusive about himself and his personality and kind of came across as being too cool for school, sort of vacant, which Harris plays really well here. But I think there's something about Salanus's kind of brashness and eagerness and kind of desperation to be published, which the reasons for are left sort of unspoken. But I, I kind of infer from Taylor's kind of empathetic performance comes from kind of, I think, wanting love and support she didn't have kind of growing up and um i think that sort of eagerness that she has puts him off and also warhol's friends are depicted as being quite cruel to her always making these sort of snide bitchy comments and then on top of that just as it seems like other work of hers is about to be published the movie shows her being tricked into signing a contract where she gets screwed on the profits and it basically feels that that and her being rejected by warhol is the last straw for her of being put down by the opposite sex and she just laser points all her kind of blame and rage on an unsuspecting Warhol and you know she has friends in the movie like this other kind of group of misfits that don't fit in like um, uh, there's a character played by Martha Plimpton and then there's Stephen Dorff who plays a Warhol superstar and trans woman Candy Darling and is really great in the movie but when 
Taylor's Solana starts going off the rails and becoming kind of paranoid and carrying around a gun. They sort of shun her and she loses her connection to reality and her anger becomes a lot more irrational. And gradually she just stops being fun to being around and becomes sort of unsettling, just kind of like muttering to herself, like they're all in it together. And like they're all there to get me. And um, yeah, just Taylor, Taylor's just like never less than like completely captivating. And in the brief moments, the movie moves away from her and explores the Warhol factory and all the people circling it, like Paul Morrissey, the film director, or the Velvet Underground, or, you know, all the other kind of strange figures there. Usually I'd all be all for yeah. that as someone who watched all of like the much maligned HBO series vinyl because I just liked the vibes of that. Even me, I was like, I just want to get back to Taylor and Solanas because she's so good, you know? Um, very good movie. And uh, it should be said that I think Taylor reunited with Mary Harron in uh, The Notorious Betty Page, which uh, I hadn't seen before, but is something I'm, I'm definitely going to watch now on the strength of American Psycho and I Shall Not Eat Warhol. She's a very good director. Yeah, I agree. Uh, will I talk about Factotum? Yes, I was going to suggest that. Uh, so Lily Taylor plays Jan, the lover and drinking buddy of Henry Chinaski, who's played by Matt Dillon, an out-of-work writer, fiendish alcoholic, and the alter ego of writer Charles Bukowski. So the film chronicles their turbulent affair, among other events in Chinaski's life. Mr. Horse Player. Mr. Big Horse Player. You know, when I first met you, I liked the way you walked across the room. You didn't just walk across a room, you walked like you were walking through walls, like you owned the place, like nothing mattered. Oh, now you got a few bucks in your pocket. You're not the same anymore. You act like you're a dental student or a plumber. Don't give me any shit about plumbers, Jan. So this is a pretty sardonic and witty film about a depressed, belligerent asshole who only cares about where his, drink, where his next drink is coming from, who to, bum, who to bum a smoke off, and where he's going to pass out later on. And uh, it's got some great lines in it. Like at one point, um, he's uh, Henry is at driving school, so he can become a taxi driver. And uh, he's like, um, the instructor's like, "What's the one thing that'd make a, ta- a cab driver lose control of his car?" And one guy's like, "A hard on." He's like, "No, some of our best men drive with hard ons all day, all night too." <laughs> and Henry Chinaski is like a, a, a sneeze, and he's like, yes, "A sneeze." <laughs> um, and I think. Um, the setting is modern day LA, but uh, and it's weird because it's a well. First of all, the setting is modern day LA, but it was filmed in Minneapolis and is was completely funded. Has an all American cast, was completely funded by Nor- the Norwegian and French film boards. But Ben Tamer, who's the director, keeps uh, Bukowski's like all of his pulpy dialogue and prose he was famous for, like lines like "I fucked better as a bum than I ever did as a clock puncher," stuff like that, and. Um, I think just uh, like you know, you can't you can't find anyone more perfect than Matt Dillon to find a, to play like a boozy alcoholic <laughs> who somehow maintains this incredible, incredibly handsome face and body. It's unfair, really. Um, what about the rest of us? Um, so just on Jan, then Lily Taylor's character, who is as bad as Henry, which while certainly not a win for feminism, it does make her more complicated and complex than other like more rote female characters uh, would be in movies like this. And they're both the type of characters that um, when they first get up in the morning, the first thing they do is uh, vomit up their night successes and then instantly like crack a beer or a light up a smoke. And I think the movie kind of lost me once Jan disappears uh, for a large part of it. That's uh, taken up instead by Henry's brief affair with another barfly named Laura, who played by Marissa Tomei, and their adventures with like her sugar daddy named Pierre. 
and then there's, he has like a get-rich-quick gambling plot that falls apart. And Jan essentially bookends the film, starting out as bad as Henry, only to start to change as the film like uh, progresses. Um, so he meets her again, and she has a job uh, where she works um, as a hotel chambermaid, and you know things are starting to kind of look up for her. And um, their third and final breakup shows how far she's drifted from the lifestyle they both shared, and was the only thing keeping them together in the end, because she marries the guy. There's a guy at a racetrack near the start of the film that. Um, Henry tries to strangle for not giving up his seat, and um, she's been she's been kind of flirty with him, and then she ends up marrying him at the end of the film. And I, I think apologies to any Bukowski fans out there, but I think Jan's journey to settle down and make, like actually make a life for herself uh, would ultimately be the more interesting story. But you know this is Bukowski, so men and their enormous flaws that they refuse to wor- work on take precedence here. <laughs> Sure. It sounds good though. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. It's a lot yeah. of just a lot of vignettes sort of strung together by a series of whiskey bottles. <laughs> I was okay if I talked briefly about uh, Public Enemies, in which Taylor has a very, very small role. Um, <laughs> that movie's like two and a half hours long, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I, weirdly, not long enough. Okay. This is my whole take on it. Cause, uh, anyway, yeah. For those who don't know, directed by Michael Mann, um, this is set in the 1930s. A time where thieves knocked over banks and other rich targets with alarming frequency. Of them, none is more notorious than John Dillinger, played here by Johnny Depp, whose gang made a name for itself by going after big businesses while leaving ordinary citizens alone. And um, as Dillinger becomes a folk hero, J. Edgar Hoover, played by Billy Crudup, um, is determined to stop his ilk by assigning uh, ace agent Melvin Purvis, by Christian Bale, to hunt down Dillinger. Uh, but as uh, Purvis struggles with the madman's realities... Dillinger himself faces an ominous future with the loss of his friends, dwindling options, and a changing world of organized crime with no room for him. And yeah, we're both huge fans of Michael Mann and his kind of brand of gritty yet stylish, unglamorous yet romantic kind of crime dramas and thrillers. And Public Enemy sees him returning to the, the figure of the criminal thief, which I think he explored in two of his best movies in uh, his debut Thief and also his undisputed masterpiece Heat. And um, as can be expected, Public Enemies has flashes of real brilliance. Like, for one thing, Christian Bale is incredible in the movie, playing this very interesting FBI agent who, kind of unlike Pacino and he is not, like, living to take down Dillinger. Actually, what's in it for him is being part of what Hoover is looking to implement, which is this larger crime-fighting agency working with more modern police technology, which would become the FBI. However, seeing how kind of power-hungry and ruthless and vain Hoover is, he becomes disillusioned and then... On top of that, I think Depp is also really good as this kind of hardened, scared Dillinger still trying to appear kind of cool and charismatic. I think between this and Black Mass, probably the last really good performances he gave before he went down a bit off the rails. rails. Off yeah. the rails. <laughs> and um, another thing that's cool is the fact that like Public Enemies explores how bank robbing essentially became an unprofitable business with the rise of the FBI, but also the mafia. And um, the movie's depiction of how like dull prohibition era America is is fascinating too. Like there's a great scene where Dillinger is escaping from a safe house and a woman is like, "Take me with you," um, and he rejects it. But it's, it just goes to show like how bleak life was was that people would rather beg to be taken away by hardened criminals than to just like <laughs> stay in their ordinary lives. And um, also like Miami Vice, Mike Mann shot the movie with these kind of clear portable digital cameras. And I think while the footage ends up looking kind of less conventionally attractive than footage perhaps shot on film does give the movie this kind of bleak and grimy quality which I like because the, the digital cameras that put the viewer right in the middle of the robberies Dillinger commits or his escapes from prison like there's an added immediacy and, but I think what kind of keeps it from achieving the lofty heights of something like Heat or Thief is, the, is that the story of Dillinger and all the figures involved in his story feels just too sprawling and vast to tell in 140 minutes 
It should really be a three-hour epic or even a series in the vein of Boardwalk Empire because you can tell like Man wants to include everything, like all the important details and all the major players even like tangentially connected with um, uh, Dillinger. And like it's just a murderer's row of incredible character actors and we only get like one or two scenes with each of them. So like in yeah. terms of the criminals, there's Babyface Nelson played by Stephen Graham, Red Hamilton, Jason Clark, Frank Nitti played by Bill Camp, Alvin Creepy Carpus played by Giovanni Rabisi. And then on the other side of the law, you have Stephen Lang as the Texas lawman brought in by the burgeoning FBI to help in the investigation. You end up shooting Dillinger. And you have Lily Taylor, Sheriff, who, Sheriff uh, Lillian Holly. So Holly was this like incredibly interesting real-life person who became the Lake County Sheriff after her husband was gunned down in the line of duty. And basically Dillinger was held in Lake County Jail after being caught for his crimes, but reportedly escaped while brandishing a hand-carved wooden gun blackened with shoe polish and in keeping with his folk legend status Dunger embarrassed the sheriff by driving off in her brand new V8 Ford car and she got blamed unfairly in the press for it due to her gender and she famously said at the time if I ever see John Dunger again I'll shoot him dead with my own gun and I just think that character is crying out to be like a major character in a HBO prestige series as opposed yeah. to Lily Taylor getting two brief scenes as her in Public Enemies and they're good scenes and I, I, the casting is good too because the real life Holly had very similar kind of defined cheekbones to Taylor and it's also kind of a nice wraparound in her career because like, Taylor started off in Crime Story which is the yeah. Michael Mann's TV show she, she played a waitress in one episode and now she's like a big role in one of his movies but like in Public Enemies because Dillinger has like a history of breaking into places and escaping Holly asks a court to transfer Dillinger to a town with a bigger jail where he'll, he'll have less chance of escaping. And Dillinger's lawyer is like, what's wrong with your jail? Is there something wrong with it? And she's forced to kind of say no because it would look bad if she said, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, Dillinger's lawyer is like, well then, what's the issue? So Dillinger is put into her jail where she, so he subsequently escapes and as predicted and then takes her car. Uh, and then after that, like Holly doesn't show up again and you just kind of want a bit more of the character and Taylor because... The movie doesn't explain how she became sheriff or how she was treated by the press after the incident. And it's just a bit annoying because the movie doesn't really have a strong female character. And, like, Michael Mann's movies tend to with, like, Gong Lee and Marilyn yeah. Vice. Or there's a lot in Heat, you know, like Amy Brenneman mm. and um, even Natalie Portman or um, the actor Dan Valora, who plays Abcino's wife. Tuesday Wild. Tuesday Wild and Thief. Um, yeah. Viola Davis and Black Hat. No one in, no one in Manhunter. Really. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I just think, like, this film doesn't really have a strong female character. Like, Marion Cotillard as Dillinger's love interest is fine, but she doesn't really get a lot to do. So, given that Holly and Taylor such limited screen time, it feels a bit like a missed opportunity. But it's not just, like, a woman character issue, because you, you want more of, like, Bill Camp, John Ortiz, Stephen Lang, Stephen Graham. And also, because the movie is trying to cover so much ground, by including all these figures, albeit briefly, everything just feels, like, a tad clipped, where you never really get to sit in a scene the way you do when Pacino and De Niro have their big dinner conversation scene yeah, and yeah, heat yeah. or James Caan quietly blows up a suburban neighborhood at the end of Thief you know and uh, you sort of want that but it is a very good movie yeah I haven't seen it in years now but uh, I would like to revisit it just uh, just to you know see where it ra- still ranks on my on my uh, man list really comes below Miami Vice or Black Hat for me uh, to be honest it, I remember not liking it at the time and it was the first man movie I saw um, so I I would say I would I would still have a similar opinion now as I did then. Um, do you want to talk about The Conjuring? Sure. Uh, so Lily Taylor plays Carolyn Perrin, a housewife who moves to a farmhouse in Rhode Island with her husband Roger, who's played by Ron Livingston, and their five daughters. 
They soon find out the house is haunted by the ghost of a witch, and soon after con- and soon after contacting paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga respectively, Carolyn is possessed by the witch whose name named Bathsheba. It's gotten a lot worse the past few nights. There's this awful smell like rotting meat that moves around the house. What? What is it? Well, our rancid smells could indicate some type of demonic activity. Yeah, so this is basically like a movie version of a fairground haunted house ride. It's like all killer, no filler, but with enough heart and character to it that it never really feels like cheap or overly campy. And Carolyn is a big part of this because we're already sympathetic to her from the start. She's like a housewife with five daughters between the ages of, like, I think it's 16 and five. And her husband is away for long periods of time due to his job as a long haul trucker. And add possession by an 18th century witch on top of that. And it's all we can do to sympathize with the poor possessed Carolyn. I think uh, like just in terms of the movies themselves, um, the characters never really grow out of their arch- archetypes um, throughout the films, uh, the Conjuring films, uh, which is, it's okay because the Conjuring movies are all about like the scares and Patrick Wilson's sideburns. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say about the Conjuring to be honest, because I'd watched it a couple of months ago and like needed a, you know, a movie I'd already seen just because Recording these episodes, you know, you, you, there's, there's never enough time in the day. Absolutely. I agree. I wanted to watch Eli for this, the other horror movie with Lily Terror. I didn't get a chance. Uh, me neither. Um, but one thing I did think about uh, while I was uh, writing my notes on this is that it's odd that a genre that was once as reviled as horror was is now like fully accepted as one of the only two temples holding up like mainstream blockbuster cinema as we know it, the other being superhero movies like the MCU and the DCEU. And I understand why, you know, people love a good scare. You know, as Candyman said, stories to tell to children, make lovers come closer in their rapture, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and But it just goes to show that the moral panic over these movies, you know, that was was just so much hot air. And we're now only actually starting to address this uh, with movies like Censor, which I saw recently. But... Um, yeah, it's just it's it's odd that now that um, horror is just this fully accepted thing, just out there in the mainstream, and it, it always was. Don't get me wrong, you know, it's, um, from cinema's very invention, you know, Castle of the Vampire, whatever that fucking nineteen oh four movie was, you know, people people have always loved a good scare, but um, you know, it's it's just amazing to see it just become this um, one of the building blocks of the modern day blockbuster cinema as we know it, I guess. Yeah, literally, The Conjuring is probably the most successful outside of the MCU kind of extended universe because The Conjuring has, like, the Annabelle movies. It has, like, there's, like, The Nun. There's, like, mm. The Curse of La Llorona. And all those movies are kind of a varying quality, but they all made, like, a lot of money. Yeah. And yeah. I, was, I still kind of go to see them. But I, I think what's really good about The Conjuring is that it's just the cast. Is I think what makes that movie stand out and become a lot better is just the high quality of the cast. Yeah. When you have, like, Ron Livingston is, like, the person whose house is being haunted. It's not just some pretty Schmo. kind of nobody. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. know? And, and Lily Taylor adding kind of real sort of class and kind of weight to the... They're just, like, ordinary kind of people living their lives. Yeah. It helps I, to get good character actors for that. I agree, because I think um, Patrick Wilson occupies this weird space that I've been meaning to bring up with you where it's like... He's like... Um, like a Jason Clark or something like that, or um, what's that Swedish guy's name? Uh, not Alexander Skarsgård. He was in Altered Carbon. 
Joel Kinnaman. Kinnaman. Yeah, he, they, yeah, these three guys occupy this weird space where they're not quite character actors, but they take a lot of lead roles, but you never really consider them a leading man, if you get me. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know what it is. There's something about Patrick Wilson that sometimes he can be kind of shifty, but I lost, but he's also like very nice in the Conjuring movies. Yeah, he's like this... Very earnest. Yeah, they all play these like uh, American everyman, I guess, whether good or bad in their movies. Uh, Like it's, it's, it's odd that a man who played a paedophile in Hard Candy Mm, can go on to just be, you know, I guess it shows his talent as an actor, obviously, but he can just go on to be like this incredibly well liked um, cornerstone of a multi billion dollar franchise. (laughs) Yeah, no, very strange whole movie, but it is a very good movie. I, I like The Conjuring. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a great picture of, uh, you know, with the famous scene where, like, Vera Farmiga sees the spirit of the witch hanging from the tree. And uh, Patrick Wilson's character is like, what? I don't see anything. <laughs> but there's a picture of, like, the corpse hanging. And this is behind the scenes photo. And Patrick Wilson is, like, doing the, like, emoji shrug in front of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that all? Is that everything you want to cover? That's, that's everything I got, yeah. Listen, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know that facepal at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Charlie Fernandez for helping out running our socials. Thanks to Laura Sarkino, our new editor who recently joined the team. Um, if you love the show, please consider donating five year a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find like special exclusive bonus episodes. We've multiple available now, including two episodes in our new Leading Legends series, where which focuses on A-listers like Brad Pitt and Denzel Washington. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Find my writings at the Headstuff Film section and at joe.ie. See you later in the fall. Bye-bye. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, the Venice Film Festival took place earlier this month, and I know that Face was lucky enough to get to speak to Owen O'Donnell, who was in attendance at the event, and got to see a lot of major, highly anticipated movies which premiered there, including Dune, Spencer, Last Night Soho, The Last Duel, The Card Counter, The Power of the Dog, and lots more. Owen was chosen by the Irish Film Institute to represent Ireland as part of the 27-time cinema programme. It's a scheme that sees one person between 18 and 25 from each EU country selected to attend the festival to be a jury member of Giannati Delio Torristrand, contribute to a film blog, and generally promote European cinema. As someone who took part in the programme before, it's an incredible opportunity, so I always like to raise awareness of it. Here, Owen talks about his time in Venice, what it's like being on a film festival jury, and the movies he saw there. Hope you enjoy. Just before we get into chatting about this year's Venice Film Festival, would you like to introduce yourself to the show's listeners and maybe tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. I'm Owen O'Donnell. I'm student journalist, mostly, until now. Um, I'm starting my Master's in BCU this year, so I'm kind of hoping to go down that path. Um, I've written for Trinity News for Trinity Film Review. Um, I was very lucky, that's for you, to get into the 27 Times Cinema program this year, where I was able to cover the Venice Film Festival part of a jury we got to cover you know 10 films select our favorite out of them give them an award um and also it was nice to get a holiday to venice you know <laughs> get everything that came with that yeah. um and yeah it was great to be there yeah and you know you were selected by the ifi in europa cinemas to represent mm-hmm. Ireland in the 27 time cinema program and got to attend venice and be part of the jury of the giornati delle autori strand mm-hmm. so you know congratulations on that and you know, I took part in the program a couple of years ago, and I know I loved it. You know, just broadly, what was the experience like for you? It was, like, it's it's hard to put into words. I've had to come back, like, to my friends, like, roommates and everything. Like, everyone asking me, how was it? It's hard to 
kind of say amazing enough times uh, without it kind of losing meaning. Um, but it was just this kind of eye-opening experience of how much there is in film festivals and film and everything. You know, I feel kind of ashamed of how unengaged I was with all of it before. And I'm hoping going forward I'm going to be a lot more kind of involved with kind of Irish film, European film, with kind of, you know, to keep involved with everything. It felt the same way, totally. And just the fact that, like, Venice, it's literally a community of cinemas all together. And, like, the, the city becomes about cinema. Uh, exactly, yeah. Everyone knows each other. And I was kind of just there. It's like, I'd love to know everybody. And I hope I do going forward, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We actually had the person who represented Ireland at last year's Venice, uh, Mia Sherry, on in 2020 to explain this then. But I think for listeners who might want to refresh, can you tell them about the Giornati degli Autori Strand and you know what type of movies tend to get selected for it? Yeah, I know Mia as well. We, we both edited for the same paper and oh, currently right, yeah. in touch as well, yeah. Uh, the Giornati degli Autori is one of the parallel festivals, I think is how they define it. Um, it runs alongside the Venice Film Festival at the Venice Film Festival accreditation. Um, you'll also have accreditation for the Giornate selection. It's very much like the the Venice equivalent of the director's fortnight in Cannes um, is what it's modeled after. It targets mostly debut directors, and if not debut directors, then much kind of, you know, smaller, um, more independent projects. Um, you know, kind of films that need a bit of a boost in publicity. And the aim of the program is very much to give those films a boost, you know, expose them to a wider audience. Um, and I think it accomplishes that. I'm hoping, you know, some of these I feel like will go far. Uh, thanks to Giornate, and we won't, we won't take credit as a jury for, you know, boosting any of that success, but um, yeah, hopefully we've made some good decisions along the way. And uh, I know you can't discuss the Giornate movies in depth as you were one of the judges, but we, I think we can say that the winner was uh, Romanian Drama Immaculate. But uh, can you talk a bit about what it's like to be on a jury at a festival and the, the time and work that goes into it? Cause I, I don't think a lot of people know about that. Uh, yeah, and I, I also didn't know about it. It's we were we were told a lot of times like 27 people is not your regular jury it's a lot of people a lot of voices going at each other um, and a lot of the time you know those voices don't all rise to the top you know out of the 27 us there's probably a couple of people who didn't get much of a word in and that was kind of just the sad reality of it um, it was a lot of debating we were told we were one of the more civil juries <laughs> you know there was no we didn't need to bring boxing gloves to the debates or anything there was no kind of um, vicious fights. We were mostly on the same page for a lot of movies, but then a lot of movies we were, you know, we were surprised by how divided we were. You know, 10 out of the jury might have loved it and the rest hated it. Mm. Um, so it was a lot of kind of discussions where we were told not to discuss the movies after the screenings or in smaller groups to just save it off the jury discussions. So it was all kind of just bottled up and then we had a couple of jury meetings. It was all just, you know, poured out either hatred or love or indifference um, to all 10 of the movies. Yeah, so outside of the Giornate, you, you got to see many of the, the big movies that premiered at Venice. And uh, I read your glowing review of Spencer, um, the Christian Stewart starring uh, Princess Diana drama from Pablo Lorraine, who's a director I really like. I know Case Stu playing such an icon has garnered a lot of attention, but what I'm personally very excited about with Spencer is that its cinematographer is Claire Mathon, who did incredible work lensing one of the podcast's Favorite movies of last year, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She also shot one of my personal favorite movies, Atlantics. And uh, I thought the trailer for Spencer, which just recently dropped, was very atmospheric and intoxicating. And is it just as ravishing to look at as I had hoped? 
Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think the marketing has been doing well to focus on things other than Kirsten Spencer because that's obviously kind of the you know the talking point of it. Um, but like everything else about it, it's just as good. Like it's gorgeous to look at. The the soundtrack's terrific. Like it's the whole thing is just so lavish, but not in a way the same as like the Crown, where it's very you know worshiping. It's kind of lavish in a disruptive way. It's you know it's constantly kind of surprising you. It's you know. Um, I was very lucky, I think, out of the 27 of us, and also, I think, four organizers. I was the only one who got a ticket to Spencer, apparently, it was the <laughs> wow. most overbooked film in Venice history, apparently. Wow. Um, so I was I was trying to keep quiet about it for the most part, but also because people were just like, you know, they were annoyed that I got a ticket <laughs> to it. Um, but also, it, it was hard not to gush about it. Like, it was my film at the festival, it was the one I got to write a review about. I was really happy about that. Um, yeah. Um, I, I'll try not to kind of, you know, talk everyone's eardrums out about Spencer, but it's great, yeah. That's brilliant, and uh, your reviews are very good. And I feel like when you're talking about the lavishness, but also being the movie being also very disruptive, I feel like Jackie, um, Pablo Rain's mm-hmm. previous movie about Jackie Onassis was similar to that. And yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I feel like in the mainstream, Stewart is still known mostly from the Twilight franchise, despite the fact that she, I think she's forged a very interesting career since then. And my co-host Andrew, who I do the podcast with, he loves Personal Shopper, the French horror she was in. Yeah. So I was just curious how good is Stewart in Spencer playing like uh, such a major figure and somebody who's so well known. It's I think I mentioned in my review as well. It is it's hard to get over, and I think that's something that you deal with in most kind of big actor projects. Um, you're still very much looking at Kirsten Stewart. It's hard to kind of picture her as a transformation, but I think that's also kind of what makes it work. It's an actor's take on Diana rather than like a transformation into Diana. I also like The Crown, but like for different reasons. And I think it's Emma Emma Corrin, is it, that, that does Diana and The yeah. Crown? It's very much like an imitation. It's like a, it's kind of scary how similar she is, but it's very much like a Kirsten Stewart take on the role. Um, and I mean, she's she's terrific in it. Like, it's, I don't know how accurate the accent is or any of like the intonations. It might all be completely off, but it kind of paints a portrait of maybe a completely different woman that is really you know compelling as a character study. Right. So that's out fifth of November here. Another movie I feel everyone is curious about is uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune, uh, his uh, mm-hmm. star-studded adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi novel. We just recently talked about the David Lynch take on the same story that he made in the 80s on the pod and which i thought like despite some good elements didn't really work as a piece of you know blockbuster spectacle so i was curious did you enjoy this new dune yeah i actually i skipped lynch's dune um mostly because he tells everyone to skip it <laughs> and i've just i've obeyed him for so long i will watch it soon i guess um i also i got the book before i saw the movie i was kind of I decided I'd be, you know, the, the great researcher before I saw it. I didn't make it all the way through, but I made it kind of <laughs> yeah. up until about the point that the film gets to, or slightly before the point where the film gets to. And I think uh, for anyone going into that blind, I would maybe advise reading even the first 20, 30 pages of the book because there's so many names and phrases and everything that are thrown at you that mean nothing. That you need, you need the contextualization. It's like Game of Thrones, you know, it's just names, faces, everything kind of blurs into one but I mean the whole the whole experience is this extravagant you know we got to see it on one of the biggest screenings I don't know if you remember like the Palabianale the big arena screening mm-hmm. um, the sound was incredible like the visuals were you know ridiculous um, I had some qualms with it in terms of 
how it split the movie in half because they're doing a part two. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about how it ends and how the next one will begin. It, it, it feels a little bit kind of cheap, but um, and I have no doubts that they will make a second one. But by the time this is a two-parter, um, it's going to be incredible. Like People are going to be looking back at this for, for decades um, in terms of the scope and how impressive it is at creating a new world. Um, so I think there's a lot of kind of hype about it. A lot of it is kind of well-deserved. Right, because I suppose the worry was that I love Villeneuve's take, uh, the sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, but yeah. that was a movie which uh, didn't really hit with the audience, even though critics loved it. But do you think Dune is a better shot at maybe appealing to the kind of masses? I don't know, because um, it's such a weird universe. It's such like an unorthodox take that I know a lot of like sci-fi since then has borrowed from it, so it's got familiar elements. Uh, but at the same time, it's so... You know, it's it's unorthodox in every way. Um, I think they the studio might have said like if it does well on HBO Max or whatever streaming they're releasing it on, they'll relight a sequel. I feel like it, a lot of it might just be kind of uh, you know it's it's an excuse to get people into seats and in, in theaters so that the second one will be made. Um, if they greenlit a second one before the movie came out, maybe people wouldn't be as excited. They wouldn't be as you know enthusiastic to get out there. So I feel like the second one is a done deal. Um, but, you know, you never know. As, as you said, Danny Villeneuve has been making great movies for, you know, a decade now, and none of them have really made any money. So <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Dune is out 21st of October here. And well, I, I'm mentioning these dates, but, you know, in COVID, nothing concrete. But at the yeah. Moment. Uh, but in, in terms of prize runners at Venice, yeah, the great Jane Campion uh, won, I think, Best Director for her movie, for a new movie, yeah. a Western, uh, The Power of the Dog. It features I Know That Face all-star Jesse Plemons. And, uh, yeah, what were your thoughts on that movie? I kind of ashamedly went into that knowing nothing about it. I think that was our first non, non-Giornate screening, um, which we all kind of got because the tickets were, like, the tickets were pretty easy to get. Um, the ticket system this year was uh, met with a lot of backlash because it was all online tickets it was all you know you needed a laptop and a phone and two other devices open if you wanted to get there this one was easy so we all got to it um and we all went in not knowing what to expect and i think there was a mixed reaction because of that um it's very much a slow you know social thriller drama uh, rather than a western you don't go in expecting you know guns blazing and everything um but it's kind of anchored by these some subtle, some very not subtle performances um, that were really impressive. And I think Jane Campion, like, she well deserved it. I wasn't really familiar with her work before, and I will very much be keeping an eye out for her now. Um, but yeah, like, it's, it's been dominated by, like, this Benedict Cumberbatch performance that is so out of his wheelhouse um, that it's another one similar to, like, The Curse of Stewart. It's hard not to see Benedict Cumberbatch in it. But it tries so hard to get away from him that it kind of works. Um, and also that, like, the rest of the cast is great. Jesse Blemons, Kirsten Dunst, um, uh, Cody Smith-McPhee, I think, is the, the kid. And then he's, he's terrific. Like it's, I think it's going to surprise people. It might not do as well as, like, a Netflix blockbuster as they're hoping because it's so out of the box. Um, but I hope it finds, it finds its audience. Mm, hopefully. And that's out in, on Netflix, as you mentioned, in December. And then, uh, yeah, in terms of another movie you saw, uh, during our coverage of Willem Dafoe's career on the pod, we watched a lot of Paul Schrader movies. I think Light Sleeper, Affliction, Dog Eat Dog, Dafoe and Schrader back together again in The Card Counter. Uh, 
Please tell me it's good. <laughs> I there was some very mixed reactions to the card counter. I think out of the the twenty seven, not all of us saw it obviously because you know same as you guys, like it was scattered around. Nobody got to the same screenings. I was lucky enough to get to the premiere um, with Paul Schrader, with Oscar Isaac, and everybody. Uh, almost met Oscar Isaac at the end. I was very close. Um, <laughs> he gave me a wave and a thank you. I was as close as I got, but. Yeah, I was probably the most positive out of most of us um, in that I really liked it, but there was a few bits I was a little bit um, unsure of. I think Schrader's comedy often doesn't work as well as his very dour, dark character study, which obviously he's, you know, he's well-versed at that. He's the master of that at this point. Uh, But there's a lot of comedy and romance in this one that maybe isn't as well-executed, but also the reviews have been, like, tremendous. So I could just be completely in the wrong on this. I spoke to a few people who came out of the screenings that hated it. Um, so I think it, it'll probably be polarizing once it hits wide release. I think if you love Schrader, you'll love the dark, um, you know, introspective, dark, you know, the, the character bits. And Oscar Isaac's terrific. But um, yeah, the overall story is maybe a little bit more muddled than some of the other stuff like first performed. Mm, exactly, yeah. It's me, me and Andrew were talking about it before and we were like, he kind of makes the same movie over and over again, but it's always good. Yeah. <laughs> it's always someone writing in a diary and like yeah. in this very specific profession and kind of having a, a crisis. Um, mm-hmm. But that's out on November here. Um, you also saw a movie that has a, a little bit of an Irish connection, the Matt Damon starring Ridley Scott mm-hmm. at The Last Duel, which uh, Matt Damon made here and in doing so became the unofficial patron saint of Dawkey in Dublin. Um <laughs> How is the historical epic itself, though? It's good. That was my last, my very last screening, and we got to see it in one of the old historical theaters in Venice City Center. Like, we were in Venice for the last day. I decided I'd try and get a ticket to it. Um, It's good, but it is long. It's a slog. Um, If you're into a historical epic, you'll probably love it all the way through, but I don't think it's going to win over kind of wider audience who are skeptical because this two-hour, 40-minute that also has... A pretty unconventional structure, um, which I won't spoil too much, but it will surprise you in how they deliver that kind of duel and how they build up to it. Um, everyone in it is great, and I'm I'm from Navan, so I'm not far from where it was filmed. It was nice to see a few, <laughs> you know, random fields and streams that I recognize. It was nice. Um, yeah, like everyone in it's great. The action is great. It's you know, we, we kind of had this discussion after it compared to Paul Schrader, who is, you know, a similar age to Ridley Scott. It was a much more energetic kind of, you could not tell Ridley Scott is, you know, late 70s at the, the tail end of his career because it's so, you know, it's so large in its scale. It's so energetic in its fights. Um, but at the same time, it kind of retains a lot of the character focus. I know some of the reviews have been a little bit mixed and I don't blame them because it's, the pacing can be frustrating, um, but there's there's a lot to like it. I think. I feel remiss if I didn't ask about the hair. The hair, noteworthy, noteworthy, <laughs> yeah. terrible, but also looks kind of cool. There's some there's some big statements with the hair. I'd say um, ben, Aff- ben Affleck's performance has been a big. Um, I loved Ben Affleck in it, but I think it's hard to get away from how much it is just Ben Affleck in a bad wig with some bad bleach. Um, and the accents as well have been a little bit of a sticking point it's kind of these generic British accents in what's supposed to be you know, 14th century France which 
that that's commonplace at this point in that kind of movie. Um, but it's still a little bit distracting. Um, but it's it's easy to look past. I I really didn't feel like a nearly three hour movie, which is the best compliment you can bestow on a movie like that. Definitely. And that's a October here. And then, yeah, lastly, in terms of the big movies, you saw two horrors, uh, The Great Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho and then Halloween Kills, which is the latest in the, the long-running franchise. Uh, what were they like? Um, Last Night in Soho was terrific, but I think it was, you know, it's exactly what you'd expect from an Edgar Wright horror. Um, we came out a little bit disappointed that it wasn't, you know, surprising or, you know, something unorthodox for him. But it's got his sense of rhythm and energy, and you know his taste in music and everything. There's been a lot of like comedy directors that have turned to horror recently. I think there's obviously an overlap there, and it's just it's just great. Like, um, but also exactly what you're expecting. I know one of the one of our tutors that went in. He didn't even know it was a horror movie going in, so he came out like amazed. He was like so surprised by it, and I almost think that's how it should have been seen. Um, is not knowing it's a horror, it kind of it ramps up slowly. In terms of its its horror, it almost seems like a comedy drama at the start, and then pulls the rug out from under you. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's great, and it's anchored by a couple of great performances. Um, Anya Taylor Joy, I think it's Mackenzie Davis is the other girl in, and oh. they're both great. It's not Mackenzie um, Davis. What's her name again? Mackenzie. Uh, I, I'm probably wrong on that. I know. One, yeah. uh, I know the person you're talking about. Uh, I she's also great. feel that. <laughs> She's very much the lead in it, and uh, she's been overshadowed by Anya Taylor. Tom, Tom, Thomas and Mackenzie. Thomas and Mackenzie, you're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but they're both great in it. And then, yeah, Halloween Kills. Um, that was the only, that was the other one I was lucky enough to get to the premiere to, and it opened up with like a tribute to um, Jamie Lee Curtis, which was very it was very sweet. Like she got the I think it was every year they give out the directing and acting tributes like the the golden lion for directing and acting lifetime achievement um and it was like a retrospective on her career she came up and gave a speech and everything i was sitting like not far from them so it was like a great experience for a screening and it was also a late night screening as opposed to like the last night in soho i had to go to like an 8 a.m screening was the only time i could get to it and that's not the best atmosphere for a horror screening um but this one was late at night you know they had like the halloween music in the in the lobby on the way in it was kind of like a fun, and I feel like Venice, Venice tend to do that every now and then. They kind of, they offer in a fun like blockbuster that will just get people talking. Um, I wasn't crazy for the movie though, um, and I felt the same with nearly everyone I spoke to coming out. That everyone was kind of a little bit like that was, you know, it was nice to be here, but the movie wasn't great. Um, it was very kind of frenetic. It was almost more of an action movie. Um, and more of a Michael Myers movie than anything else. Like Jamie Lee Curtis is barely in it. It's just a lot of, you know, very worshipping shots of Michael Myers murdering people to the point where it gets a little bit indulgent, which as someone who, who likes most of those movies, they're almost a guilty pleasure for me. Even I was kind of a little bit turned off by it. But I'd be happy if it's like an awkward middle chapter in what's been a pretty good like reboot trilogy kind of mm. I, I managed to talk to the director after as well that's the only like celebrity interaction i got as well i got a picture with him i got talking to him um, he was very nice um but yeah i wasn't crazy about it which i felt bad for right um well there were the big movies that you saw and then on top of that you were watching movies that you were judging for the Jonathan Delatore award but was there any smaller movies you saw at the festival outside of 
that that you, you want to shout out and urge people to see just because I find that when you go to the festivals it's often the discoveries that you make um, that you might not expect that kind of leave the biggest impression yeah I'd love to shout a few of them out if you'd asked me last week as, as you know like I would have been sworn to secrecy to talk about any of the Shanade screenings but I think now we're kind of free to to gush about the ones we liked and Immaculate was our winner um, it's a Romanian film about um rehab centers and kind of abuse within rehab centers um it was really impressive i think we might have been the first jury to choose a movie as our winner that eventually got the actual venice award for best debut by director mm. um so i think jornate were very happy with themselves that we we chose right immaculate was great deserto particular i think will go far um i thought it was really great we all got talking to the director um, we got talking to most of the directors at the Jonate screenings and they were so friendly so you know personable because at the end of the day for most of them this is their debut they were very happy to talk to anybody about their movies um and california as well was a nice kind of coming of age you know boyhood-esque film for like a young moroccan girl um in italy and i got to talk to those directors and interview them as well um so that was really nice so i think I've heard a lot of people say this is one of the strongest lineups for Venice in years, um, both in terms of the actual lineup and in terms of the Jonate screenings. You know, we had some movies that I think will go far, um, but you never know. There's a lot of movies in the world. There's a lot of competition. Um, so we'll see. I'll be champion of them anyway. I'll be doing my best. And was there any smaller movies that played at the festival outside of the Jonate that you, you liked, like maybe in the Arizonte section or... I didn't do as well as some other people in getting to the smaller screenings. I got to a couple of them, like Man Week was a really good one. Um, I cannot remember the director's name, but he is, I think, Wes Anderson's costume designer or his set designer. Um, it's his directorial debut. It's like a nice kind of before sunrise vest kind of romance in Paris. Um, very kind of small scale, very much a directorial debut. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It was kind of a sweet break from the big kind of blockbusters. Um, but I think in terms of the smaller festivals and even the smaller gatherings in the main selection, I didn't do as well as some other people. I did really well with the big, you know, blockbusters and the screenings everybody wanted to see to the point where I had to cancel like the Sorrentino film, I had to cancel Amadovar's Parallel Mothers uh, because they were at the same time as like Doom and Last Night in Soho. Mm -hmm. And that kind of broke my heart a little bit, but you had to kind of pick and choose what you could and couldn't see. As I'm sure, like you remember, it was, it was okay. tough to make those decisions. It can be hard, no, certainly. And uh, we should also point out, uh, as well as reviewing Spencer, and I'll put a link to your review, which is a great read in our show notes, and you got to interview two very interesting people. Uh, one was uh, Belgian director Jaco van Dormel, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, who made a movie called Mr. Nobody with Jared Leto a few years ago. And then yeah. you also got to speak to a filmmaker I really love, uh, Michael Winterbottom, who you know made the Trip series, 24-Hour Party People, Cock and Bull Story, Greed recently. He's a person, I think, who is always trying to do something kind of new and innovative. He's very socially conscious. He's incredibly prolific too. What was it like speaking to them? And can you talk about their project that they were promoting? Yeah, so we were talking about Isolation, which is uh, one of the many films in the festival that was COVID-focused. Um, it was it's a selection of five short films from five different directors, um, each doing their own kind of perspective on COVID, how they would like to perceive it, um, and what they thought was kind of, you know, a novel idea to focus on during COVID. 
Um, Michael Winterbottom did one on uh, asylum seekers in London, um, which I thought was really kind of touching. It was a focus on how asylum seekers kind of often live in this, the conditions that we lived in during COVID, but that's their life always. You know, it's locked looking at the same few room, same few walls in a room. Um, and then Jacob van Dormel um, had a very kind of personal story of loss in his own family, and he decided to kind of uh, turn that into a film through still photographs. It was a really kind of touching tribute to his father-in-law. Um, but yeah, we were very much, with all the interviews, a couple other people got interviews, we were very much pushed for time. I wanted to kind of gush to Michael Winterbottom, we got to talk about other projects. We were warned, kind of stick to the project at hand. You probably have five minutes to um, get these guys between photo shoots and interviews and everything. Um, but it was great. Like as someone who's trying to break into journalism, it was nice to get a couple of more interviews, kind of hone those skills a little bit more, do some decent um, questions. I hope. Um, I think those have gone online now as well. So yeah, it was it was interesting to talk to them, to do some networking, and also to be an interviewer. Um, in a festival atmosphere where you're so rushed, so pushed for time, you kind of just have to get the best questions you can as quick as you can, which was stressful, but um, it was fun. Yeah, definitely good prep for DCU. Yeah, I um, hope so. Yeah, and just before you go, just um, one quick question: Did you you spot any celebrities? You mentioned you were taking, you were talking to David Gordon Green, director of Halloween Kills, but um, you saw Oscar Isaac. But anyone else that uh, stuck out? We saw we saw a couple. We we did a couple of paparazzi days where we had we had the schedule of the premieres of when they would be, so we knew when the stars would be coming in. Um, if like we wouldn't really go out of our way for them. Um, I mean, we all tried to be a little bit more, you know, professional than we are. Really, we all said, you know, we're not that obsessed with celebrity culture. And then Timothy Chalamet would drive by. We'd all like chase after the car, run after it. <laughs> so I think. Who did I see? I saw, we got pictures of like Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, um, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, um, kind of just on the way into the premieres and kind of after the premieres, there was no random celebrity spottings. I know I missed Bong Joon-ho by about an hour at the airport on the way home because some of, some of the other 27 got a picture with him at the airport just before we got there. Also, Bong Joon-ho, uh, he was the jury president this year. I did see him like three or four times. But just in the distance, like it would, you could see him hurrying away from the crowds, um, and everyone, someone would just say, "Hey, that was Bong Joon Ho." It's like cool. Um, but yeah, we got a couple. I saw Oscar Isaac, I think, three days in the flesh as well, so that was nice. And Jessica Chastain as well for the scenes from Marriage premiere. Um, again, like this close, um, and I'm not, you know, I wouldn't have been hopping over fences to get pictures with any of them. But you know, it was it was nice to be sitting for a drink and then Jessica Chastain just walks past you and that's something that happens you know yeah. it's a bit surreal no definitely and uh, yeah it just it sounds like you had an incredible experience mm-hmm. the whole the whole thing I, I imagine you'd be recommending other people you know next year who are under 25 or I think 25 and under to apply yeah. for the uh, 27 times cinema program through the IFI right yeah absolutely I will be recommending it to everybody I know I don't know how many I know that are eligible for it at this point but um yeah, I think everybody should apply for it. It seems like every year, and it seems like the same for nearly every cinema, every country, it's always, there's less applications than you'd expect. People think that it's out of their reach, 
um, or that it's going to be more kind of elite than they're used to, which I felt, I felt underqualified for it, to be honest. And I was so happy I applied um, because, you know, everybody there thinks the same thing. Everybody there applied with the thought that they wouldn't get it. And then they did. So, I mean, I guess that would be my advice for anyone who wants to apply to it. Um, you know, <laughs> to do your best and just think positive thoughts um, because it is, it's once in a lifetime, as I'm sure you'll agree. Like it's, it's something I probably never get to do again. And I'm so glad that I got to do it. Yeah, no, it's definitely an experience to cherish. And yeah, we mentioned your writings during the festival, which um, I'll put a link to in the show notes. But um, is there anything else you'd like to, you know, add or plug? Um, at the moment, I haven't got much going on. Maybe ask, ask me a year, maybe. Um, I've got a portfolio if anyone's looking to hire. goes for you too, anybody. <laughs> um, but no, for now, I would say just keep an eye out for applications next year. Um, I guess part of our responsibility was promote European film. So watch more f- European film, you know, get used to subtitles, get a, watch a bit more. Yeah, no, but I can't think of a better message to end on. Yeah, thanks so much for speaking to me. And if, uh, the door's always open if there's a character actor you'd like to talk about, which is usually what the show covers. So if there's anyone you're fascinated by and want, like, want to talk about, you're welcome to. Yeah, I'll think, I'll think a little bit. I'll get a couple in mind. Perfect. Yeah, thanks so much for speaking to me. Thanks, man. It's good to talk to you. Great. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.